Welcome back for another episode of Queer Diagnosis. I'm your host, Zaria. My pronouns are she, her, hers. Uh, I'm Shrita, and my pronouns are also she, her, hers. Our guest today is Devin, the founder and CEO of Happy Family After. Hi, Devin. Could you please introduce yourself with your preferred pronouns? Hi, yes. My name is Devin, uh, and then my name is gender neutral. My pronouns are also she, hers, and I'm very excited to be here today. Very excited to have you. Um, so how do you identify with the LGBTQ plus community? So personally, I am uh, a bisexual, cisgendered female. Um, I am also a single woman who's almost 40. And I know that's not necessarily LGBT, but it's certainly perceived as, as strange and unusual. <laughs> um, I work with a lot of uh, queer uh, members of the community as clients and have many as friends as well. Um, so there's a lot of, um, and I live in New York City, so a lot of my interactions are uh, with people in the queer community. Yeah, you're actually our first guest who's also not a medical student, which is a pretty cool change of pace. Um, I will say that me and Shrita were both very nervous, um, and we still are very ner nervous, I'm sure, because um, it's, you're like, you're such a remarkable individual. Um, oh my gosh achievements. meanwhile yeah. I'm like medical students like you're talking to medical students I, yeah. I don't know that I uh measure up no you definitely do um also because it's kind of like I know that you support new parents with coaching and like baby sleep training and I kind of want to go into OB-GYN and I don't know how much those two things relate but it seems I know to some extent they are related especially like when you're in the hospital setting so just for context can you explain what happy family after is yeah, so it's interesting that you don't see how they relate because I think it's part of a big issue that I would love to talk about. Um, what we do is we help new parents after they have their baby um, and sometimes before in like preparation and things like that, but pretty much from the day they get home from the hospital or the birth center right after the delivery, if they have a home birth, we're there to help them get used to what life is like with a newborn and their life, their life has been completely turned upside down usually. And, you know, a lot of people aren't prepared for that. And unfortunately, the way things are in the medical community, like once that baby's out, the OB is really out of the picture until that like six week checkup or like two weeks if you had a C-section. And then you're sort of handed over to the pediatrician who's super focused on the baby. And also you don't know this person and you don't have any relationship with this pediatrician. And in a lot of ways, the new parents, especially the birthing parents, are really sort of left in this gap where they don't have a lot of support. And there's a lot of advocacy going on and things happening out in the world to work on changing that, but a lot of it is on the, the birth side of things. And there's just this divide between like pregnant person and person with a baby that is actually more of a much more of a continuum and i would love to see that care you know bridge that gap so that's a lot of what we do we're not just there to care for the baby we're also there to support the parents whether that's in their physical recovery from the birth you know um not not from a, a medical standpoint but for instance you know like, okay, so one of the things that I love to do is they get home from the hospital and they just have all these like bags of stuff, like the stuff they brought, but also all the stuff that they bring home from the hospital, like diapers and lotions and ointments and all these different things. And also stuff for the person who has given birth, the birthing parent. 
and it's pads and it's witch hazel and it's hemorrhoid cream and it's a peri bottle and all these different things. And they don't have any, and a sits bath and they don't have any idea how to use it or how it's going to help them. And their body has just been through what is likely the most like physically challenging and traumatic thing it's ever been through. And so I go through these bags that first night home and I get them all set up with a little station in the bathroom of here's what you do. You know, when you go in, you want to like change your pad. I want to make sure you have like a fresh trash can. You need to, um, you know, use the, the peri bottle when you urinate to keep, you know, from like stinging and here, you know, you might have hemorrhoids. A lot of people don't know how common it is to get hemorrhoids after delivery. And here's the, the hemorrhoid cream and the pads and all this different stuff. And they just, they don't really get like, nobody really prepares them for that or sets them up for that. So that's something I really like to do um, to support their own healing and self-care and things like that, you know, making sure they're eating and staying hydrated and staying on top of their meds and like all those kinds of things. And, um, you know, a lot of the time, if they have a partner, they have parents around or they have, you know, family members coming to help them. Like, it's great, but those people are not necessarily knowledgeable in, you know, what is required after you have a baby. And then on top of everything else, you have all the care for the baby, who is this new person that you've never met before, who has all these needs. And, you know, if they're, uh, I, I prefer the term body feeding to chest feeding or breastfeeding, because I think it uh, really, it's so much more than just like the chest area that's involved. It's your whole body. It's your arms. It's your you know, torso, the, if you're nursing a baby and you've had a C-section, they're like kicking your scar, like you're using your whole body to feed this baby. And that's really what it, it takes from as well. Um, so, you know, if you're body feeding, maybe your nipples are cracked and you need support with that. And, um, there's just, there's just so much that I think, like I said, gets left behind with new parents. Yeah, I think listening to everything you said, it's made me realize like every time I like watch like an interview of like a celebrity who had a baby, which is like obviously a very different experience. But it's like there I feel like people after giving birth, they're always like, oh, my God, there's so much I didn't know about. What do you kind of attribute that to? Like, why is it not an experience that we haven't been talking about as much? Um, I think there's a lot of different reasons. Um I think there's just from, um, you know, like I started like the standpoint of the medical community, like from the OB's perspective, once the baby's out, like my job here is done, there's not that continuity of care uh, in this country for the, the parent. And a lot of that has to do with, you know, the industrialization of healthcare and health insurance and all those kinds of things. Because in other countries, um, I know, for instance, like in Australia, in the UK, like you have your midwife or whoever, you know, helped you with your delivery, checking up on you sometimes every day after you have a nurse come to the house, like a few days a week or something. I don't know exactly what the structure is, but I know that there's so much more support for them. Um, I think a lot of it too has to do with feminism. Of course, you know, birth and pregnancy have traditionally been women centric and we do not love to center women or emphasize women or take very good care of women so we we care about the baby and then once the baby's out it's like cool now we're going to care about the baby and you could go you know do whatever bye um <laughs> so there's definitely that 
that aspect of it too. Um, and I think on the, on the flip side of it, it's something that's not really talked about and it's becoming more and more talked about, but for a long time, no one wanted to talk about how hard it was or how much they struggled or how much they didn't know, because you're sort of fed this line that you're just going to have these instincts that kick in and you're going to know exactly what to do. And you're going to bond with your baby and you're going to love your baby from the word go. And that's not what always happens. And people struggle in silence because they don't know that other people have been through the same thing. And so often, one of the things I hear from my clients is if I say like, oh, this is normal, like so many parents go through this, they're like, oh my God, it is like, I felt so alone. Like just knowing that like another person has been through this and, and experienced this is, um, is so huge. So there's, and there's a lot of stigma around it, right? Like, oh, you can't handle your baby. Like you're a bad parent, you're a bad mom. Like, again, like gender neutrality being what it is, but like, there is that element of moms, you know, female presenting parents, especially parents who've given birth, get so much judgment, so much criticism, so much guilt. Um, you know, there, there's so much there that they're like afraid to admit, you know, that it's hard or, or what's happening. I've worked with um, some uh, parents that are two dads. So of course, um, you know, where they used a surrogate or whatever, and they get so much support and so much just like understanding and such like a huge level of, uh, you know, support and understanding from the people around them because they're like, oh, they're men. They don't, you know, they need this help. They don't know what they're doing. Oh, look how cute. Like, oh, the dad's taking the baby to the doctor. He's like, I am one of the two parents that are both dads. Like who else is going to take this baby to the doctor? Like, but you know, um, Ali Wong, the comedian says in one of her routines, like it takes so little to be considered an amazing dad and so little to be considered a shitty mom. <laughs> so I think that that heteronormative sort of dichotomy there can be really damaging in a lot of ways because women are afraid to say like, I'm struggling. And, you know, I know for parents that are not in, you know, cisgender hetero situations, it can be even harder because then it's like, oh, well, maybe you shouldn't have had a baby or like, maybe you're not, you know, cut out for this or, you know, stuff like that. So I think the fear of criticism and the stigma makes it a lot harder for people to speak up. Um, and then the, the third point is, uh, I think pure evolution, uh, even though the newborn period is really, really difficult, you do forget about it after it's done the same way I've heard you forget about the pain from giving birth. So a lot of, you know, parents that I work with that are second time parents are like, I don't remember this from the first time. And I'm like, no, it was like this the first time. Or, you know, your friend who has a six month old or a two year old or whatever is like, oh yeah, no, it's not that bad, but it was, they just don't remember. <laughs> so there's that too. Um, when you're in the, when you're in the thick of it. Um, so I know that there's a calculator called GPA, which is the abbreviation for gravida parabortis, uh, which is the number of pregnancies, the number of births carried to full term, and the number of abortions, respectively. So I remember learning about this in my EMT class last year, and I asked my you know, my Pakistani mom, like, what is your GPA? Because I was trying to get some practice with calculating it because we had a quiz coming up. Anyway, so she kind of brushed it off, and in the end, my dad ended up going through the numbers with me. So 
I know in South Asian culture especially, I've noticed that there's a kind of shame associated with talking about your body and the challenges associated with pregnancy. So I remember like when my younger sister was born, uh, it was very much kept under wraps, like what happened during my mom's pregnancy and like post-birth, which I know was a really difficult time, but it's not really something that's talked about in my household. Um, like even me talking about this on the podcast is probably the most I've talked about it at all. Um, and also, I didn't even know if nipples could crack. Oh, yes. Oh, it's awful. <laughs> yeah, I see. I don't know what that is. <laughs> and I don't feel yeah. like we, like at least at this point in time, I feel like that should be part, actually, Maybe there is a reason that it's not part of our curriculum, and I don't know what that is, but um, it is very interesting to hear you talk about it, especially because I just, I'm not surrounded by people who are in that position yeah. at this time. Yeah. Being, again, being such like a traditionally like women's health issue, I think it's just not something that people really want to talk about or teach about or emphasize. But a lot of my colleagues actually have done education at like the high school level, even in like you know, sex ed, health, whatever about like birth and pregnancy and having a newborn and all that stuff. I don't know why it's not in more curriculums. Um, it absolutely should be because it's something that the majority of people are going to go through it's at one point or another, like becoming a parent, whether you, whatever your role is in the, the creation of the baby. So it's absolutely something that I wish we knew more about. And we're actually taking like women gender studies course and what you just said about sex ed. We talked about um, the sex ed curriculum in high schools at one point in the semester and if I think about it we didn't even talk we only talked about the use of condoms that was pretty much it you know so it's mm -hmm. odd like I it's now registering to me that oh maybe post-pregnancy should be part of that curriculum um yeah that's, that's interesting um so I think you yeah. kind of touched on this already but what inspired you to uh start ha happy family after <laughs> So um, actually, it's interesting. When I first started the company uh, going on 10 years ago, it was called Mama's Best Friends, um, because at that time we were primarily working with, you know, you know, moms as birthing parents and uh, just culturally, I think over the last 10 years, so much has changed. So I changed the name in 2019 to be more inclusive of all types of families and all different ways that people identify. So um, I actually got interested in this work when I was a kid I was maybe 10 11 and I started babysitting and my neighbor had twins uh babies and I started I would go over there and just like hold them and I just loved them and she asked me if I wanted to babysit for them and I was like yes so uh I started babysitting I had a babysitting empire all through my teens and um you know even when I was in college and everything I was always like nannying in the summer and babysitting and um my mom would say, you know, it's funny because I would babysit and then the parents would come home. Sometimes it was like an afternoon where it was like, you know, the mom was doing something and then she'd come home and I'd always end up staying and like talking to them for a while and like chatting with them. And I'm like 13 years old and my good friends are these like women in their thirties. And when I, my mom would say to me sometimes, she's like, you're there for the moms even more than you're there for the kids. And I'm like, what are you talking about? That's silly. Like we just talk about TV and whatever. But what I came to realize as I got older is that it's very isolating to be a parent and not have a good support system and not have people around you. And, you know, if you have a, a partner, maybe they're working, you know, gone all day and then they come home and they're, you know, and, and you're just alone with these kids who are not interesting to talk to most of the time. <laughs> and so having someone there to 
just interact with and, and be social with is so nice. And what, one of the other things my mom said is that like, even when you have like other friends with kids, they all want to talk about their kids. Like you're the only person to them who wants to talk about their own children and doesn't want to talk about your own children instead. So, you know, I started to realize how important that level of support was. And then um, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. So I became a teacher because I loved working with kids, but I didn't like working with the school system. And I really missed that level of interaction with the families directly. So I quit teaching and I started, um, I, I was, you know, kind of trying to figure out what I wanted to do. So I went back to nannying. And then I discovered that there is a whole like subset of childcare that specializes in uh, newborns and new parents. And uh, I took a training as a postpartum doula and it was amazing. And I was like, this is what I've always wanted to do. Um, so it was something I was doing on my own. And then I got really busy and popular and started bringing on people to work with me and work with our clients. So now we work in um, all over New York, New Jersey, uh, Philadelphia. We are expanding to some other cities around the country and uh, offering this newborn care and new parent support because it's just so, so important. And you don't want someone who's just going to like take your baby. You want someone who's going to really be there with you and for you as well. Do you consider being um, like a postpartum doula, do you consider that as a subsection of healthcare? Um, I think so. Yes. I mean, we are I would say we're healthcare adjacent because I want to make it very clear that nothing that we do as doulas is medical treatment or care or diagnosis of any kind, but we are working with people who are usually actively involved in healthcare, you know, in a medical setting, whether that's post-pregnancy or pregnancy or the newborn or this or that, like, and I think that that, that periphery, that support system, in addition to the medical practitioners is super, super important. And having that that continuity of care and that level of not just, okay, I'm your doctor, here's your diagnosis, here's your medication, like by having someone who's really there to support you as a person um, going through whatever you're going through is super, super important. And I think should be an essential element of the, the overall, you know, I hate to use the word holistic because it sounds so hippie, but it actually means, you know, all encompassing the, the holistic picture of what does this healthcare look like? That's a that's a really um, nice way. I like how you put it. It's adjacent to healthcare um, because when you were talking about hemorrhoids and medications, again, my mind just automatically goes to like the medical side of it. It's like, how do you apply this and treatment wise? And to be honest, the more you talk about, it, the more I'm like, maybe I want to try this out. I I think it's probably not something that people just try out for fun, right? But <laughs> it seems really mean? cool. Hemorrhoids? Do you want to try out hemorrhoids? For no. Oh, oh, sorry. <laughs> no. Um, I mean, just like getting involved as a doula, is that something that you can only do with a certification? Um, I mean, there's, there's definitely training and, um, you know, workshops and learning experiences that go into it. But it's uh, a lot of it comes from just experience. And, uh, you know, when I, when I tell people, when I talk about like the background that the people that work with me have, we all come from different backgrounds. We all have all different like trainings, um, and education, <clears throat> but there's an element of, you know, I call it like a je ne sais quoi, like, and I don't know where you're just a person who's a really good support person to other people and to other, um, so, you know, a lot of the 
people that work for me have maybe like a background in childcare or as a nanny or um, because we just love babies and we love being around kids and stuff like that. But there's plenty of people that have come to work for me that don't have those backgrounds and they're just great friends. Um, and that's why my business was originally called Mama's Best Friend because we're there for you to support you, you know, whoever you are. And then when I wanted to change it, I thought about changing it to something like parents, best friend, but that sounded kind of stupid. And um, so that's how we became happy family after, but I really love that, that best friend element that, you know, we're, it's so cliche to say, but like, it takes a village. Like we're part of that village for you. Um, so yeah, I mean, anybody who wants to get into the field, it's, it's pretty easy entry, but you know, it, if you're good at it, you're good at it. And if it's not something that you think you can be good at, then it's probably not for you. I think Shweta would be great in that position because she always babies me. So <laughs> <laughs> how has being um, identifying as bisexual uh, influenced how you've interacted with parents, if at all? Um, so, yeah. So, uh, you know, I've been very fortunate, like I said, to be in the New York City area where it's very normal to have parents that are two moms, two dads, you know, some kind of different orientation. We've had trans, transgender parents. We've had all different kinds of scenarios. So, you know, it's easy for me to, you know, accept that and support that and, and not really even bat an eyelash that it's, you know, this configuration of your family or whatever. So um, I, I think, you know, it's funny, I would say my orientation more than like being something that has helped me with my clients, it's sort of been the reverse where it's like seeing my clients in some of these family configurations has helped me be more aware of who I am and what I want and what I'm looking for and things like that. Like one of my favorite couples of all time that I worked with was actually their babies, their twins just turned 10 the other day. So 10 years ago. Um, and there are two women and they were like, just the, like, happiest most compatible like most together like most amazing couple and I you know always had a sense of being bisexual but I never really pictured myself like in a relationship with another woman or being married to another woman or anything like that and I was like this is pretty cool I could do this <laughs> so um you know just you just have to be like totally open-minded and accepting and just really ready to embrace whatever um, you know, people are going through because also, uh, I think what we will start seeing a lot more of is some of these, you know, gender things and maybe some gender dysphoria and internalized things like that coming out and being able to support parents, because this is, you know, such a time of your life where your, your body becomes so, you know, front and center, like, whether it's, you know, through exams at the doctor's office while you're pregnant or actually giving birth with like, 50 different people looking at your vagina and like, you know, uh, your, your boobs hanging out for everyone to see and, you know, all that stuff. And I think there's a lot of, um, a lot of that, that could really use support. So, you know, being part of the community and seeing people who are going through these things, it's helping me to be more aware of some issues that people might be facing and some stuff that, you know, they might be going through and, and some feelings and things like that, that are not, um, that you wouldn't normally see in a, you know, cisgender hetero couple. 
Um, or maybe you would, and they just don't even know how to articulate it. So, um, you know, having that awareness of everything that might be going on and how to support it. Could you like talk about an experience where maybe you like were thinking about disclosing your identity to a parent and didn't know how they would react or felt like their opinion of you would change? Um, so, I mean, I, I don't really talk a ton about my personal life to my clients, although actually that's not true because sometimes they are very curious about it and they like are living vicariously through me because <laughs> they're, you know, home with a baby, remembering the days when they would go to brunch and things like that or, or date or whatever. But yeah, like I'll talk to them about sometimes my, you know, my dating life and things like that. Cause we're spending a lot of time together. You know, it's up close and personal. Um, I have to admit, I don't do a ton of like dating women or having long-term relationships with them. So it's not something that's ever like tremendously come out, um, in, in talking with clients, but I do say, like, I'll say, you know, when I talk about like my future partner or the person I want to be with or people I'm dating or whatever, I'll usually just use like they pronouns and stuff like that, or like a, a partner or person. I never say like, oh, I'm looking for a boyfriend or husband or whatever. Um, first of all, because I'm not, because, <laughs> um, but you know, I'll be like, oh, like all of the people that I date or, you know, the, the partner that I'm looking for, they're like this and that. And so I'm very comfortable you know, expressing it and talking about it, I just wouldn't say that it's something that comes up a ton in my conversations with my clients. Um, I do know that if anyone had any kind of issue with it, I'm perfectly happy to not take their money and not use them, not let them use our services. Like that's fine with me. Um, I really want to be inclusive and accepting of all uh, types of families and all types of people. And if anyone is not okay with that, then they can get away from me. <laughs> I love that. So I wouldn't say it's something that I'm, that I'm hesitant about disclosing or anything like that. It just isn't always a situation where I can be like, Hey, hi, I'm Devin. I'm bisexual. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so we're actually learning about like the dominant family ideology where there's two cishet parents and then two kids. Um, so have you been part of any spaces where you were part of a, um, I guess, a family that wasn't traditional in that sense? So, yeah. So this is a topic I love to talk about because I say all the time that people are not happy with you unless you are married with two kids who are a boy and a girl. That is what they want from you. And then secondary to that, you are ideally married to someone of the opposite gender and same race, but they care about that less than they care that you are married with two children who are a boy and a girl. If you have fewer children, they ask when you're going to have more. If you have more children, they say, you know how that happens, right? Like the only time it's acceptable to have a third is if your first two are the same sex and you're trying for the different sex. And when you start to notice this, you'll realize like, obviously not everyone feels that way. I certainly don't feel that way, but that the general societal cultural commentary is like, oh, you had a boy and now you're having a girl. Oh, that's perfect. The perfect little family. Like I have a sister. It's just me and her. I love her. Like, I, I think I would rather have her than a brother. I don't know. You know, um, the, uh, my mom wanted two girls. She got what she wanted. Like, <laughs> um, so I think that very dominant 
family structure ideal definitely comes up in my work with my clients, but more so than that, I see it tons in my personal life. Like people are horrified that I am not married. They don't want to hear like my extended family members. Every time I see them at like a holiday or a wedding or a party, like they don't want to hear about how my business is going. They don't want to hear about where I've traveled to. They don't want to hear about what podcasts I've been interviewed on. They just want to know who I'm dating and whether it's serious and what's going to happen. And I'm just like, don't we have anything more interesting to talk about? Like, really? Like, this is what you care about? Actually, it's funny. And and, uh, an aunt who I I adore um, said to me one time at a thing, she said, oh, and is there anyone special? And I said, yes, it's me. (laughs) So I think that shut her up. Um, So yeah, I, I think that you know, people who are having kids are dealing a lot with that. Like, oh, oh no, like if you had another girl, what are you going to do? Like, how would I just be happy that I have another healthy child or another, you know, not another, another child with no qualifiers whatsoever about who they are, what their genitals look like, or what the, you know, anything like, um, there's a lot of, you know, Oh, you're pregnant with your second. Congratulations. Oh, you're pregnant with your fourth. What the hell? Like, just be, well, and actually that's another interesting point I would like to bring up, which is that um, when someone tells me that they are pregnant, the first thing I say, unless I know for certain that they were trying and they are very excited about this, the very first thing I say, no matter what is, how do you feel about that? Because you never know. Somebody could you know, have been married for a few years and then, you know, they get pregnant and you think like, oh, great. Like you've been waiting. Like, you don't know that. You don't know anything about what anybody is feeling. You know, they might have a two-year-old and they're pregnant with their second. And it seems like, oh, it's the perfect timing or whatever, but like, maybe they didn't want another one. Maybe they're going through some health issues, maybe, um, or maybe they had like several miscarriages and they're feeling like excited, but nervous because, they've been through, you know, so much heartbreak with that, or, you know, so there, there could be anything under the sun that people would be feeling. And if you're a person who is just open-minded and supportive of whatever they're going through, you will be a very rare person in their life. I think that your approach is very much aligned with um, the practice of affirmative care. So when I was working as a medical scribe, I had the opportunity to meet a female patient who um, was visiting for stomach pain, and when we ran a urine test, we learned that she was pregnant. Uh, it was definitely an interesting find because during triage, uh, she said that she wasn't pregnant. So um, I had the opportunity again to be with the patient when our attending physician told her, um, and while our attending did her best to put it as gently as possible, the patient was of course surprised and notably stressed. So she discussed how financially it wasn't exactly the right time for her to have another child with her husband because they had already had four children. And if I'm being totally honest with you, it was the first time I registered that not every individual who is pregnant is necessarily happy to be pregnant at that point in time. So I appreciate the approach that you took, um, that you're taking actually with uh, taking mom's female things into account, kind of in the way that our attending did. So before the interview, you mentioned that you're having a baby with your two best friends. How do you feel? I am so excited about that. Um, Having my own kids is something I've 
I always thought I really, really wanted. Like I loved babies. I thought I was going to like get married to my like college sweetheart and raise a family and it just didn't happen. And I started doing this work and I started to really realize how hard it is and how much responsibility is and how challenging it is. Um, and, and as I've gotten older, I've sort of moved away from the idea that I would have my own kids. I'm still open to it, but, um, and I did egg freezing two years ago because that's all the rage now for women in their thirties. So, um, I did that. I was like, great, this is like my insurance policy. So if I end up getting married when I'm 42 and, you know, wanting to have a family, like, I know you can do it alone. I've had tons of clients who do it alone. I have no interest in doing it alone. It's just too much. I'm very happy with my life with my cats who you might be able to even see. But anyway, um, my good friends, uh, are two men and they married, they got married and they were talking about having kids. And I said, Oh, like what, you know, path do you think you'll take? Will you adopt or will you try to, um, you know, do a surrogacy and whatever. And they said, Oh, well, you know, we'll, um, we'd love to have our own like biological children. So we'd love to do like egg donation and surrogacy, but we just don't know, you know, where it's going to come from and it's costly. And, and I immediately was like, you can have my egg. And they were like, what? I was like, yes, this is incredible. We can have a baby together. I can like be a part of the life of this child that I'm like genetically related to, but don't have to parent. I just get to be the aunt. Honestly, I think being an aunt is the best thing in the world. Like my, I have my sister, I'm dying for her to have a baby. People are like, don't you want kids? I'm like, no, I want my sister to have kids. Like that is what I want. <laughs> um, I am not going to carry the baby. We're going to use a spurgate and um, it's going to be their kid hundred percent. But like I said, they're my close friends and I'm going to be part of their life. And um, you know, just being able to give this gift to them is pretty cool. So there's like a million, million hoops you have to jump through though. So we're doing that now. <laughs> I love that. That sounds so cool. You kind of touched on this, I think, when we were talking about how untalked it is about like the post-pregnancy experience, but um, what are certain like blind spots that you've seen in the birth industry that your colleagues may, I mean, maybe just hasn't been talked about? Yeah, so I think a huge one that again is is starting to come more to the forefront is uh, perinatal mental health. Is you know we hear about postpartum depression, we don't hear that it can manifest as anxiety, it can manifest as OCD. Um, a lot of birthing parents don't even realize that they have it, um, or are unwilling to admit some of the things that they might be feeling even in an issue that's not pathological, even when you're just experiencing normal hormonal changes, normal emotional changes, you might not feel super bonded to your baby immediately. You might not love your baby immediately. And like, those are things that are all normal. And I think people are so scared to talk about them. And then it gets worse and worse and worse. And I have a few friends who, you know, finally discussed things with their doctor, like two years down the road. And it turned out that they had had postpartum depression the entire time. And they you know, didn't have as positive of an experience with their child that they could have had, had they had adequate treatment. Um, you know, they do these screenings, which are like fine, but it's pretty obvious what you're supposed to answer. 
<laughs> um, and there's a lot of, I think also the, the previous generation, like the grandparents and the, you know, aunts and uncles saying like, oh, you're fine. Like, what do you mean? You just had a baby. Like, of course you're just tired. You're this, you're that. Like that is something that is, is hugely not discussed, not encouraged for people to seek support. And it's honestly such a shame and, and so awful that it's not, I mean, I, want people to go into pregnancy and birth just assuming that they're going to have mental health issues as a result and being prepared to treat them even if they haven't before I want it that to be the norm more than you're probably fine it's probably not anything like that is what I want because it's so 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 common and I would much rather we like over treat and treat people too well and give them too much support than not enough which is what they get now um, so that I think is a huge blind spot. And again, like I was saying at the beginning of the interview, you leave the hospital with your baby, like 24 hours in. And then if you've had a vaginal delivery, you don't see your doctor for six weeks. When you do see them, you basically go in there like, are you okay? Let's talk about birth control. And then you're out. There's no continued support. There's no, um, check-ins, no like relationship building, like nothing like that. Um, so just being there for the health and well-being of the birthing person, I think would be so much better and so much more critical. And there was something else I was thinking of that I was going to say that I forget what it is. Um, but that, yeah, that is super, super important. Um, and not just it suddenly becoming all about the baby. Um, one of the things, if you don't mind, if I go back to an earlier question, if that's okay, is when we were talking about why this is that there's this gap in support. And I think a big part of it is, um, frankly, capitalism money, because you can sell people tons and tons of baby shit. You can sell them strollers and baby gear and look at this cute thing and nursery decorations and cribs and outfits, so many outfits that the baby is just going to poop on or not really wear. And you can sell, you know, pregnancy books and yoga classes and birthing balls and, um, you know, maternity photo shoots and cute maternity outfits. And like, there's nothing really to sell people about their, you know, well-being, at least nothing sexy to sell them. Like, look at this hemorrhoid cream. Isn't this fancy? Like stock up on this. So I think that's also why sort of culturally, all of the the talk and the the conversation is around like I, I just literally got off the phone this morning with a dad who has been home with his baby for three days is losing his mind and said you know we bought a few books but like we were not we got all the he said his literal words where we got all the crap we bought all the books and we were not prepared for this at all so like you know it's just there's nothing sexy about it there's nothing to sell there's nothing um to you know there's just a lot to blame people for and make them feel bad about so we don't actually give a lot of support in that um in that arena and it's it's a real shame so with that said and noting not only like the lack of continuity between um support after birth all the way until those six weeks, which I actually didn't know it was six weeks. That's alarming. Also, I didn't know it was 24 hours that you leave the hospital. I mean, is somebody in the physical, I'm not in the physical condition to leave my room after having cramps or my period or whatever it is. So I don't understand how you can birth and then immediately be gone, like 
good to go 24 hours later. Yeah. So I will say if you have a C-section, it's usually like two days or three days, which is still not enough for like a pretty major surgery. And uh, then in a C- the case of a C-section, I think you see your doctor at two weeks, they literally check your incision and send you on your way. Yeah, that's that's alarming. No, I was thinking like even about the experience you described, I feel like there's also a generational aspect because like my grandparents live in India and the only two times they've come to America when, when I was born and my younger brother was born. And I remember, I mean, I was four when my younger brother was born, so I've just heard stories, but my mom had, um, she got like seizures, lost her, like it was just a very like traumatic thing after the, after she had given birth. And now even thinking back, like she always says, she's like, I feel so guilty that I like couldn't be there for your brother in like the first three months. And I'm like, you were practically bedridden like it's not she couldn't do anything and it was like now that I think about it like when my grandparents were there and even with my dad it was also focused on my little brother and I was like who was taking care of my mom at that like was anyone making sure that she was okay so it is insane that and because of the stigma around mental health it almost gets even more compounded Right, exactly, exactly. And, and, you know, it's something that I think as things have happened with healthcare and health insurance and things like that, like my mom, she was in the hospital for a week with each of us. She's like, it was like a hotel, they bring you food, they take the baby, like, it's great. And now it's not like that. They, they send you home, like still very heavily bleeding and don't give you a lot of indication of you know, what to look for in terms of like warning signs of anything happening um, after you get home and, and just people end up in, in some pretty bad situations because they don't realize that what's normal and what's not. So what are some ways that future healthcare providers and not even just healthcare providers, just um, like in parenting spaces and the birth industry in general, how do we address that, like that lack of continuity, the lack of an emphasis on women and Uh, with respect to capitalism? Yeah, so I think it's super important for the people who are interacting with pregnant people to put a lot more emphasis on, are you prepared to take care of a newborn? Like, are you, you know, people will take a six-week birthing class that goes over like 30 minutes of baby care, and they won't talk to you about the emotions you're going to be going through. They won't talk to you about lack of sleep. Oh, that's what I was going to say before, sleep. So that is another thing when I was talking about the mental health, someplace that there's a really big gap is sleep. And this is my like personal crusade through my business and through everything I do in life is like, we do not get enough sleep even when we do not have a baby. And when we have a baby, we super don't get enough sleep. And it leads to so many bad outcomes with like mental health and physical health and everything else. So anything you can do to get more sleep and to help new parents get more sleep is, is tremendous. Um, so that's why we offer in addition to like overnight care, when you have a newborn, we offer sleep training. If your baby is older and they're not sleeping, we get them sleeping so that you can sleep because it just has such a huge, huge impact on your health. So, um, remind me what we were talking about. Oh, what do I want people to know? So that is, that is a big one there. Um, yeah, helping people prepare for, because again, like giving birth is a big deal. You should absolutely be educated about it. You should have support with it, all that stuff, but it has a start and an end point and then it's done. And then you have this baby for the rest of your life. So get prepared for the first few weeks of parenthood. If you know someone who has a new baby or is having a new baby, just be there for them. Be 
open-minded. Like I said, ask, how are you feeling? Be ready for the answer. Don't judge what they say. Be somebody that they can say anything to and just listen. That's so huge. It's so huge. Like somebody might have their second baby. And I, this is something my, my own mom said to me and, and other you know, people have said, like, you have this second baby and you miss your, your three-year-old you know, like they're the, the kid that, you know, and that you love and they, that this baby is a stranger, you know, so maybe they're having those feelings. Maybe they are just super happy and everything's great. And that's wonderful. I'm not saying it doesn't happen, but just, you know, don't assume how someone is feeling and don't judge how they're feeling. And that's really, really huge. And, um, give them the only like baby gifts you should ever give anyone are gift cards and food. <laughs> that's it. Feed them. Don't buy them toys. Don't buy them outfits. Don't, I mean, buy them outfits if you want to, but also give them gift cards because diapers are expensive and that is what you need the most of. And um, new parents need to be fed. They need food. Um, don't send flowers. It's very sweet. Don't do it. The flowers will get ratty in two days. They're not freshening the water in the vase. I'm doing that. If they have a postpartum doula, send them flowers. That's fine. But if not, just send them food, lasagnas, just send it. Um, so that, and that, and yeah, like preparing not only for birth, but for parenting and people who are entering the medical profession or people who are in the medical profession, either as pediatricians or in OBGYN, like get that continuity, be aware that your job is not over. Your relationship is not over. This, the, this parent's job is certainly not over once the baby is out. It's actually just beginning. So having that, that continuity and that support and making sure that they have support in place, whether it's a family member, their partner or whatever, um, for after the baby comes, I think would be so absolutely life-changing and, and make such a huge difference for outcomes across the board. And I think that what you were talking about with like lasagna, gift cards, things of that sort. That goes for me too. I'm happy. I don't want birthday gifts or anything of that sort. That sounds amazing. <laughs> and I think that that's right. like whenever you're getting somebody a gift, it should just be money. I'm sorry if you don't like just, if somebody right. No, yeah, just, like yeah. I'll buy what I need. Um, but I think that is so important. And I do know that I, I, there were when I was in high school, there were a few people who were pregnant, and they didn't have access to this kind of information. I feel like it's also again like. A generation like it's not like we're not prepared for this like I'm 20 and what if I my mom had a child when she was 19 I don't think that she had access to this information but also I think um when she was living in Pakistan she had generations of family living with her so she didn't necessarily need that but having a child in America is so isolating and you don't have that same support system so I'm glad that there are individuals like you who are out there yeah. helping parents yeah so that was something my mom said to me. She kind of didn't get it when I first started doing this work. And then one day she just said to me, Oh, you do what grandma did for me. Cause we lived in the same town. My grandmother was over every single day. Like she had, ton, my mom had tons of support and, and not everybody has that. And a lot of my clients are older and their parents are either like very elderly or they've passed or they're just not living in the same area or whatever. Like, and it's, it is very isolating. So yeah, having having support is just so tremendous. Let's talk a little bit about how, like, you were talking to us about how um, you have you have so many you have so much experience in this field, and I think it's incredible, especially considering like when you were thirteen, this like you you kind of were already there, and you found a way to materialize it. So 
as somebody who's 20 and Trita is also 20, um, what would you say to your 20-year-old self if you could go back in time? Um, it's so interesting that you asked that question because I think it is hilarious that if you asked me in college what I wanted to do, I would never have said this in a million years. But if you asked me when I was 12, this is absolutely what I would have said. Um, and I get emotional talking about it because I just love my, I love my job and I love my life so much and I'm so happy. And um, I think that, that really just, just going back to what you cared about and what you loved when you were younger is, oh my God, I'm so embarrassed that I'm getting so emotional about this, but it's- No, please don't, you know, that, I'm going to start getting emotional. That's your truth. <laughs> that's your truth. I was reading, you know, Marie Kondo, the organizing book, and she was talking about how when she was six, she would like organize the classroom for her teachers, like that she loved, she always loved organizing. And now she's like somebody who helps people organize. Like if I knew, you know, I thought that what I wanted to do was like get married and have babies and be like a stay-at-home mom because I wanted to be around babies. And I didn't want the constraints of like a nine to five Monday to Friday job. And I wanted to, you know, be, you know, financially successful enough to be comfortable and have the things I wanted to have and, you know, live a nice life. And I thought that the way that I was going to do that was by like marrying someone who was like a lawyer or doctor or something. And like I said, like popping out kids and living in the suburbs and like being a mom. And what I've realized, I had this realization pretty recently is that what all I've ever wanted was to have a flexible schedule, be around babies all the time and make a good living. And that's exactly what I have. <laughs> so it's like, you know, all these pieces of things like, if you can't figure out what job is going to give you what you want, invent your own. Cause that's kind of what I did. I mean, postpartum doula has definitely existed before I got into it, but it has grown tremendously as a field since I started, um, which I take 100% personal credit for now, <laughs> but no, I mean, I, I have, have grown it tremendously in the area and I want other people to have these opportunities. So what I would say to someone who is 20 is don't think about what, the list of options that you can think of. Think about what you really love and what you really want out of a career and go back to your roots. Go back to what you used to love and figure out how you can make that a reality for yourself and how you can make that your your job and your life. Because I spent a lot of time like stumbling around with no idea what I wanted to do. Would you actually mind clarifying? At what, what age did you start like happy family after? So like I said, I started babysitting when I was 13. So that is something that doing childcare is something that has carried through. I never thought of being like a nanny as a career. And I didn't want to work at like a daycare center or anything like that. Now I know that being a nanny is actually a great career. There's plenty of nannies out there, like making six figures, like living the good life. Um, but uh, you know, traveling with their clients and all this stuff. Like I have a lot of friends that do it. I'm like, this is, if I had known this was an option, I would have. Um, so uh, then I became a teacher, like I said. So then I quit teaching when I was 26 and um, I got back into nannying while I sort of found myself and figured out what I wanted to do. I was also doing a lot of traveling. So it was pretty easy to pick up work, like babysitting and whatever. So 
I became um, a postpartum doula. I took my training in 2008, so I was 27. And I started the business and I really became like an entrepreneur, like run the business, like CEO person uh, when I was 30. So also don't expect that you're going to know what you want to be when you grow up, when you're 20. Like, it's okay if you don't. A friend of mine said to me recently, she, she was trying to figure some stuff out and she's like, oh, but I'm not like you. Like I couldn't start my own business. I don't even know what I would do. Blah, blah. I was like, listen, you're 28. I would have said the exact same thing when I was 28. Like, I didn't even know I could have a business until I was like 30, 31, like even considered it an option. And now I'm like, I love this. I love marketing. I love sales. I love running the business. I love systems. I don't love bookkeeping. So I hired someone to do that. Like I, you know, I didn't go to business school. I'm playing catch up here on like the, the business learning side of things. But um, I, I fell in love with it because I had to. I had to do it, but um, yeah, so don't, don't worry if you don't know exactly what you want, but yeah, like if I look back at the timeline of my life, like 12 year old me knew what was up. <laughs> no, I was just, I was saying to my mom a few days ago, I was like, I feel like the older I get, the younger I get, like, cause I feel like I'm, cause I've been like going to therapy. I'm like, okay, that's what we're like kind of getting back to. And I feel like every time I like accomplish something, I almost view it in the lens of like, how would 17 year old me like I think that's who I have to go back to to really contextualize my life because like I feel like they were pure you know like it was they were almost more independent of everything else that was coming in so it's really totally. cool to think that there's like a 12 year old 12 year old Devin out there who's like really happy and excited that this is what's going on yeah, yeah. well not you know I, I say all the time that people are so scared to turn 30 like your life mm -hmm. is over like not even a little bit yeah no it's really it's just the beginning <laughs> I'm turning 40 this summer and I am so stoked for life to get even better <laughs> that's really reassuring because personally I've I've always been um very timeline oriented and I was like I don't know what happens after I turn 29 like for me life I, I have no idea right it's hard for me to see any I was just like does anything do you feel things for the first time anymore? You know, are there any new experiences to be had after 29? And so it's really reassuring to hear you speak. And it's very, um, honestly, I feel a lot better because it's also a really stressful time with finals right now. So thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. This means a lot. Oh, no problem. I'm so happy to. And all I have to say is don't worry about what happens after 29 because you're not going to know until you get there. You are going to be a completely different person than you are now. So um, I went to the thing that inspired me to like turn my doing this myself into a business was uh, something I, a business conference for women that I sort of randomly ended up at and it was on my 30th birthday. And like, if you had asked me even a week before what I thought I would be doing two weeks from now, it would have been completely different. So you can plan and you can prepare, but don't try to see too far ahead because there you won't, you have no idea. And just, you know, enjoy the journey. Thanks again to Devin for joining us. The perspective of a doula is not really one that I've had exposure to before. So my main exposure to babies has been pediatric patients, who are really cute, by the way, and birthing scenes and medical sh shows, which is like not a real shadowing experience that I can count on my resume, also because medical shows are sometimes accurate and sometimes not. And I can talk about that for hours. But anyway, um, so we're taking... So we're taking this like global reproductive justice class 
And I've been developing an interest in OB guy just because it's really cool. And also I think that I could be a provider that women could really find help in. So I've been doing research on the OB guy specialty and I was surprised to learn that there was really no kind of continuity of care for the birthing patient uh, when Devin mentioned it. Because also when I've been Googling the specialty, it's not something that we really talk about in OB guy or outside of either. Um, so I think that doulas are a really cool subsect with specialty almost, even though it's not explicitly in the medical field. So I think it's weird that we know as a society that babies have regulars, regularly scheduled appointments for vaccines and check-ins, but I don't think that we really get to talk about MAPA. So as a reminder, MAPA is um, a gender-neutral term for the parent. Um, so it's really just pointing that the healthcare system hasn't really focused on birthing parents. Because as I mentioned, they might not be bringing as much revenue, which is something that I didn't really think of. I just kind of thought of it as neglect for women, uh, which Devin also touched upon. So I think the reason that the burden falls to women to take care of themselves is because, first of all, as a society, we stigmatize asking for help, which we also talked about in our previous episode in regards to mental health with um, Sarah. And then we also stigmatize, well, we limit the options for resources as well, right? So even if you want to get help, it's hard for you to get that help. So for myself, I first learned about what a doula is when I was working as a medical scribe. And my favorite physician, it was really cute because it was his first ba- their first baby and um, just a really all-around great family. So I remember that his wife had a living doula after giving birth. And I didn't really know what a doula was, but I also kind of figured because their, mo- their mother-in-law was staying with them, they wouldn't need a doula because Again, like I was pretty ignorant and I didn't really know what it takes like emotionally, mentally or physically to have a baby. So I figured, okay, well, one parent would be one mother, like one family member would be enough support to kind of help you for like the first month or whatever it is. Um, So I think that as like a South Asian woman myself, there's such an emphasis on keeping it in the family where you don't really ask anybody else for help. You're kind of expected to do it on your own. Even if you do ask for help, again, like, it's so difficult to get it. So what do you think? Yeah, I think the point that you made about um, South Asian women specifically, like, I definitely experienced that um, with my mom. And I shared the story during the podcast, but she had a really difficult um, post-birth experience after um, having my brother. And even though I was young, like now thinking back to that experience, I don't really think there was anyone looking after her. And something I have memory of more clearly is the guilt that she felt. And I always felt like that was unreasonable because obviously it was out of her control. So I definitely think we have to do a better job of um, normalizing care for the birthing parent, which seems like an obvious thing. But I think Devin mentioned, you know, we have this sort of I guess hesitance or or we just often forget to like include women in the healthcare process, right? It's often their bodies are being talked about, but they're not present in the room when they're being talked about, which is kind of a ridiculous thing. But pivoting away from that, I think one of the takeaways I had is how when we asked Devin what she would tell her 20-year-old self, she was like, I think, I think she said something along the lines of, um, her 20-year-old self would have been pretty like surprised, but her 12-year-old self would have been so excited and happy because this is exactly what her 12-year-old self wanted. And I think for me personally, I 
like the older I get, I think I'm much more interested in um, what the much younger versions of me would want because I think that was a pure more I guess uninhibited version of myself but even with starting a business like she didn't know that that was something that she could do until she was 30 so I think the way I thought of it is as the more the as you get older you know you learn new tools and new skills but ultimately they're servicing a much younger version of yourself and I thought that was really sweet yeah I really enjoy that too I keep going back to um like the Marie Kondo example of organization I'm obsessed with organization not in a way that I impose it in others, although if you ask my family, they might say otherwise. But I kind of think that validated my experiences where I feel like I'm trying to figure, like I feel like some people comment on um, my organization and my professor actually one time called me a type A personality. And I thought that was really funny. And I think that just hearing about how it's okay to like hold on to those things is okay. makes me feel more confident in myself. And on that note, we're going to wrap up here. So thank you so much for joining us and we'll catch you on the flip side. Bye. Bye.